We are looking this morning at uh, Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to begin in verse 27, and we're going to read down to Genesis 12, verse 9, Genesis 11, 27 to 12, 9. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 8, and I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy open and to be reading along with me this morning. And again, before we do go to God's word, let's go to him in prayer and ask him to bless the preaching of his word. Our Father, we bless you that you are a God who reveals yourself in the scriptures, that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We thank you that it's by the reception of your word we are made wise unto salvation. We bless you for breathing out the portion of scripture that we look at this morning. We pray that you would speak, that your son would speak, that Lord Jesus, you would exercise your office as the great prophet of the church, and that you would speak into the souls of your people, that we would hear the voice of the good shepherd, that we would realize more about you, the one who is heir of all things, and that we would be drawn into closer communion and fellowship with you and your Father and your Spirit. And so, our God, we pray that you would please bless what we do now and that you would grant us fruit into eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And again, we're looking at Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, and picking up in now that genealogy, um, you could say it is the covenant line in contrast to the genealogy of the sons of men, very similar to what we uh, saw back in chapter 5 of Cain's uh, line and the line of Seth through whom the Redeemer is coming. Now we are told in verse 27, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they had come to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country And your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "'To your offspring I will give this land.'" So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. 
And Abram journeyed on, still going, toward the Negev. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder if you were asked, who is the greatest person who has lived uh, before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world, what your answer would be? I think if, if I were not going to give you the answer that I'm about to give you and which you're probably already anticipating, I would tell you it was the guy that made the wheel or figured out fire or, or came up with cheese. One of those three things because they are some of the most wonderful things that we have in life. Um, and there have been many great men. There have been many, many, many great uh, inventors and engineers, even in recent history. There have been many great thinkers. There have been many, many, many great men and women who have contributed to the well-being of society and the advancement of, of, of uh, technology and, and engineering and architecture and medicine and banking and economics and education and philosophy and every other uh, branch of science under heaven, there have been many great men and women, but the Bible is going to tell us that the most pivotal individual who has lived in human history outside of the Lord Jesus, and I know you may argue for John the Baptist because Jesus said he was the greatest of those born among women, nevertheless, the most pivotal of all figures in human history besides the Lord Jesus is Abraham. In fact, Abraham is so great that you cannot understand your Bibles apart from understanding Abraham. Abraham is so great that you cannot fully appreciate and understand the gospel apart from Abraham. Abraham is so great that Jesus, when he speaks of heaven, shorthands it Abraham's bosom. He is so great that when Jesus speaks about the glories of heaven, he refers to it as sitting down with Abraham and feasting at a table with Abraham. Now, there is nothing in Abraham that makes him that great. There is nothing in Abraham that makes him a a special person in and of himself. In fact, as we have already seen throughout our studies in Genesis, Abraham is a sinner just like every other sinner, fallen in Adam, under the curse, headed for damnation. In fact, Joshua The book of Joshua will actually tell us that Abraham, prior to being called by God and everything we've just read about, was an idolater, probably a moon worshiper with his father Terah on the other side of the Jordan. That Abraham was just as fallen and wicked as everybody else. But God had a plan for Abraham, and God was working out his purpose in Abraham, and God was unfolding his promise of redemption in Abraham, and and God is going to bring the Redeemer through Abraham. We have been looking in Genesis as we have uh, walked through the unfolding of Genesis 3.15, and we've seen those grace lines and how God is always moving things and carrying them along and unfolding his plan of redemption. In order to bring Jesus into the world, he now is doing something new with Abraham. Um, The Abrahamic narrative, which takes up a, a considerable portion in Genesis, actually is set against the background of what God has done in the flood and what God has done at Babel. Now, at the flood, you'll remember that what God did was he wiped out the world. He saved Noah, his sons, his son's wives, Noah's wife in the ark. 
He spared the typical new creation. Noah comes out of that ark as a second Adam, as the head of a new humanity, and yet as, as the head of a humanity that is not yet redeemed, whose hearts are still corrupt. And we see how quickly that perversion uh, manifests itself. And then the last account that we read before we come to Abraham is of the men on the earth in the, in the building of the Tower of Babel and that great city and building the city of man and, and, and rebelling against the God of heaven, no, forgetting about the flood, forgetting about what God had done and, and taking it on themselves to bring all their ingenuity and all of their skill together so that they could build for themselves a city and a tower that reached to the heavens so that they could set themselves up as God. And it is high-handed rebellion against God. It's what we see in the world all around us through every age. It is what fallen men do. And we see that God deals differently with the men and women of Babel than he did with the men and the women on the earth in the days of Noah in that instead of destroying them, he scatters them. If they would not fulfill God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and to subdue it for the glory of God, he would force them to fulfill to some small degree his intended purposes for mankind. And what he does with Abraham is instead of destroying the world and saving one, he separates Abraham out. Now, there's a very interesting thing that we have to keep in mind with before we come to look at this text more closely this morning, that that this is riding on the background of what God does at creation. Remember, at creation, God divides. He is the God of division and separation. He separates the light from the darkness. He separates the waters. He separates the dry land from the sea. He separates animals according to their kind. He separates animals from plants. He separates man from animals. He creates man according to the image of God kind. He separates. He is a God of divine separation. And that is a, remember, if you'll remember back that far, that is a picture of what God is going to do in the new creation. He is going to separate from self a people. And so everything about the Abrahamic narrative is about God's work of new creation and separating a people for himself. And it is God's way of continuing to deal in the world and separating people unto himself out of the world to bring them to glory. Well, as we look now and we are introduced to Abraham for really the first time in our series, we are going to see two things. First, we're going to see the call of grace, and you'll see that in the latter part of chapter 11, in the beginning of chapter 12, and then we'll see the promise of grace. You'll see that at the beginning of chapter 12 in those first three verses and the subsequent repetition of those things throughout the Abrahamic narrative. We'll notice that Abraham has to be called by God. Abraham doesn't decide to follow Jesus. We do make a decision at some point in our lives to trust the Lord Jesus, but behind that is the call of grace. God has plans for Abraham. Abraham is worshiping other gods on the other side of the Jordan with his father and with his family. He is heaping up possessions for himself. Abraham is living like everybody else in the world, loving family and possessions and not loving God. Now you might say, that's kind of harsh. I don't know about that. It doesn't say that. Well, it does say that. And in fact, there's an intimation that Abraham is called earlier And I'm not great at math, and I've never been great at math, but I'm smart enough to know that if you add up what we're told about when Abraham's father had him, 
and when he died and when Abraham was called, and we read in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, when Abraham was called, the numbers don't add up, and we have to conclude that God was already working in some way to call Abraham to himself, and that Abraham was not obeying the call of God. Now, I I had to wrestle with that. Um, There was another possibility that also would prove the same point that Abraham is laying up for himself possessions and he is just living for self and for family and for possessions and that would be that he is moving with his family to try to go to a land that we would later be told is flowing with milk and honey. Very interesting that when Abraham is called he's heading to the land of promise but it may be that he was going there with his father in the arm of human flesh to have an earthly inheritance in Canaan. Very interesting. They're heading to Canaan, and God essentially says, get out so that you can come in, and I'm going to give you Canaan, and it's going to be by promise. It is a, it is a call of grace. God is going to teach Abraham that everything that Abraham has is by grace, and it's unexpected. I can imagine that when God approaches Abraham, it is completely unexpected. Abraham doesn't think that God has big plans for him. Abraham doesn't know that heaven is going to be called Abraham's bosom. Abraham doesn't know that believers for generation after generation after generation after generation, billions and billions and billions of believers are going to be called the sons and the daughters of Abraham. He doesn't know what God has in plan for him. It is a call of grace. It is absolutely unexpected. And yet it's set against the background of what Abraham is doing. Um, One writer puts it this way. Called by God in this remarkable way, Abram's immediate response was halfway obedience. The kingdom of God is always stunted in any family of believers where family and prosperity are given priority over obedience to God's word. Halfway obedience, when it is the priority of our lives, and halfway blessing will be the experience of our pilgrimage. Abraham doesn't know what God's grace is at this point. It is unexpected, and it is set against the background of what he thinks he understands. Now, that is a picture for us. Um, There's a lot of discussion about grace. There are books being written about grace, and, and many of them are truncated in, in what they teach about grace. But what we never want to do is fear the idea of the greatness of the inexplicable nature and the undeserved nature and the unexpected nature of God's grace. We never want to lose the astonishment of the unexpected nature of God's grace. If, if you think you deserve it, God's grace, you do not understand grace. If you think that God's grace came to you because you, you were mature enough and you made the right decisions and you've always tried to just do the right thing, you don't understand grace. If you think that um, you have in any way whatsoever merited grace because you have really desired to be a morally upright person, you do not understand the nature of saving and redeeming grace. The grace of God comes to us. Abraham's going to be called ungodly in Romans chapter 4. God justifies the ungodly. And no matter how much the history of Israel tried to clean that up 
in the rabbinical writings and say that Abraham was this godly man and by law keeping he got justified, the story of the Bible and the teaching of scripture teaches the complete opposite. It was completely unexpected. I'm sure it was alarming because when the grace of God comes to us, it disturbs our lives. It doesn't say, oh, I'll be gracious to you. You can live any way you want. Instead, it says you must sacrifice. The entire history of Abraham's life after receiving the call of grace is a history of trial and sacrifice. He first has to give up everything. He has to give up his families, his relations, his his trusting in provisions. Abraham was very wealthy. We find out that later. And he gave up, he gave up a, a physical inheritance from his father. He gave up everything that he knew because that's what God's grace calls people to. God's grace calls them to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. And so, yes, while it is free, and yes, while it is unexpected, and yes, while it is unimaginably sweet and gives us an unimaginable reward for all eternity, it is very alarming, and it is very costly. And it's good for us to come to terms with that. God called Abraham out so that he could go in. He called him out of the world, away from everything that he knew. Um, I love the way Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, puts the, uh, what would be alarming, both probably to Abraham, but also to his family. Um, Lloyd-Jones says, we can imagine that his relatives argued with him and remonstrated with him and said, where are you going? We've always lived in this district. You're getting up and you're going. You're leaving solidarity. You're leaving civilization. You're going to live in tents. You're going to be a journeyman, a sojourner, a traveler. Are you mad, Abram? You see, something of the alarming nature of the call of grace you know, you also see something very fascinating in the scriptures that the call of Jesus to follow him um, is not in any way whatsoever different than the triune God calling Abraham to leave everything here. When Jesus comes and God is manifested in the flesh and he begins to draw disciples to himself and he, he calls them to follow him. He's calling them to redemption. He's calling them to labor in his kingdom. And, and it's very interesting that the, writer, the writers of the gospel accounts make a point to note that it was costly, that it was oftentimes alarming, and that it meant sacrifice. That coming to Jesus and following Jesus meant that, that James and John would leave behind a lucrative fishing business. They would sacrifice that. Now, why, why am I emphasizing so much the cost of the call of grace. Because I have seen it time and time and time again that people will say that they want their children to follow Jesus. They will say that they want to follow Jesus, but they really just want to have a safe life with their children and they want to store up for their retirement and they want to live for self. And you can't do that. You cannot respond to the call of grace by trying to hold on to all of the security and the ambitions down here. You can't. And... No matter how much you want good education for your children, no matter how much you want a safety net and a provision for the rest of your life, God rips all of that away from his people, and he says, trust me and follow me. And he does it in every case. The call of grace is the call to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. I was thinking about Simon Peter, because I am Simon Peter through and through. I'm painfully aware I am just... My best friend said, of all, the of all the apostles, which would you be? I said, I'm Simon Peter. He said, you are definitely Simon Peter. 
Um, and, um, and I was thinking about Peter. He is called to follow Jesus. He does, just like Abraham does. And you have that beautiful account where he falls down to worship Jesus after that great catch of fish, that miraculous catch of fish, and says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. He's a man that knows his sin. He's a man that knows he needs redemption. He is the first of the apostolic band to profess who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, there in Caesarea Philippi. He is, he is ready to go out and, and to preach the gospel in uncharted territory. And yet Jesus tells Simon Peter, when he restores him, he says to Peter, um, when you were young, you, you walked where you wanted, but when you're old, another one will carry you where you don't want to go. Jesus knew that in the depths of Peter's heart, he didn't want to suffer persecution. He knew he didn't want to be martyred. He knew no one, by the way, should want to be martyred. He knew that his flesh revolted from the idea. That's why he would deny Jesus when a little slave girl asks if he's a disciple of Christ. And yet God would sustain him in taking up the cross and he would carry him to the place where he would sacrifice and God would sustain Abram. And what's beautiful about this is that behind the call of grace is the divine being of God who has already prepared the outcome to draw those that he calls to himself and to make them useful and to sustain them and to bring them to glory. And Abraham, now at this point Abram, has a heavenly mindedness about him. He sees behind the call of grace that there is a divine being who is of so great power that he can provide and sustain it when Abraham enters in by faith to obey the God of grace who has called him. But he also understands that Abraham understands that that call of grace is leading somewhere. He understands that it's not about the land of Canaan. We're going to hear more about that in a minute. He understands that it's not about an, an earthly habitation. He will dwell in tents as a sojourner and a stranger. I've given you this quote. I love it. Uh, Gerhardus Voss said that only the predestined inhabitants of the eternal city can dwell in tents as kings and princes. I love that. Only the predestined inhabitants of the eternal city can respond to the call of the God of grace, can let go of those things that they have held on in disobedience, trying to take possession of Canaan for themselves and their own efforts, or have given half-hearted obedience, and they can enter in because they realize that the one who sustains and provides the grace and will bring that grace to an ultimate fulfillment and glory is the one who has called them. Now, if you're a Christian, that is true for you too. Um, in fact, the Apostle Paul will say, if you are Christ then you are Abraham's. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say, if you are a physical descendant of Abraham, then you are Abraham's. It says that Abraham is the father of those who believed and who, in the words of Jesus, rejoiced to see his day. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad that the children of Abraham are those who have heard the call of grace, have realized that it is completely unexpected, that it's alarming, 
that it's costly, and yet that behind it there is the God of grace who has purposed all things and is going to bring us to glory and that all the sacrifice is worth it. There's a great song, um, more recent years, Michael Card wrote it, um, and he's reflecting on, I think it's called Things We Leave Behind, and he's reflecting on the very truths we're hearing, that, that responding to the call of grace means trusting God and leaving behind family and possessions and, and things that weigh us down here. And he has this great uh, verse about Simon Peter. He says, there sits Peter, foolish and wise, proudly he's tending his nets. Jesus calls and the boats drift away and all that he's known he forgets. And Card goes on to say, but we have trouble realizing what we gain by what we leave behind. We, we need we need the same faith as Abraham to realize that if this call of grace has come to us, then God is going to give us something unimaginable by his grace in Jesus Christ. But secondly, um, we, we find out that there is the promise of grace. How, what in the world would compel Abraham to leave everything? I mean, Abraham only has the word of God. He doesn't have anything set before him. He has no empirical evidence that the God who's calling him to lead, leave and to trust him, to go out in order to come in, he has no empirical evidence. He has the word of God. What saving faith is, is trusting the God who has spoken about what he has spoken to us in his word. Faith is responding to the word of God. It's not, it's not an emotional feeling. Faith is not a, uh, a leap in the dark. I, I know if you use that phrase, I want to be gentle, but there's no such thing as a leap of faith. There's a trusting God's sure and steadfast word, and that's all that Abraham had. How could Abraham leave everything? How could he go leaving his father who he loved and his, his, his uncles and his aunts and everything that he had known and all of the security of his life? How could he leave that and enter in on this journey? Well, he had the promises of God. He had exceedingly great and precious promises. He had promises that no other man had ever received in human history. And notice that they're set out for us in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. You, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what, here's what we're maybe forgetting. It's not just that he's being called to leave everything that he's ever known behind, and, and that is the call to Christian discipleship, but he is being called to take God at his word of promise with a wife who is barren. Now, I have prayed with my sister for years as she wrestled through her barrenness. Um, I have prayed for women in this congregation who have been here over the years and come and gone who have wrestled with the burden of barrenness. Um, I have come to believe that it is one of the greatest burdens for a woman in this world. And have seen God faithfully answer those prayers and bring new life and joy and blessing. Um, and yet here is 
Abram, and we're told in chapter 11, verse 30, that Sarai was barren and she had no child. And so the promises of God on a prima facie consideration of them don't make any sense. How is God going to make a great nation, and later we're going to find out many nations, out of a man that has no children? How is God going to make um, a man who has no children to be a blessing to the nations? How is God going to make a man who has no offspring um, to be blessed and to be protected and, and shielded and guarded and, and revered when he has no offspring because he has no one to pass the legacy on to? He has no way of, of humanly or personally fulfilling the promises of God. This is the wonderful thing about the promises of God. You can't fulfill them. That's the wonderful thing about the promises of God is that they are absolutely impossible for you to fulfill. And so they come to us and God gives us large promises as he gave to Abraham. And oftentimes they look very contrary to our circumstances. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to counsel people and counsel myself when facing difficult circumstances and having to say, God has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God has promised, I will bring you to glory. God has promised that there is no more sickness or sorrow or death in the new heavens and the new earth. God has never promised a nice, clean, safe, secure life here and now. He has never promised that. Nowhere in the pages of Scripture is a nice, clean, safe, secure life ever promised by God. And yet all of God's promises are fulfilled and are eternally realized and can only be held on to by faith. Now, Abraham could respond to the call of grace because of those promises, God will unpack those promises. He essentially says to Abraham in the rest of the narrative that he's going to give him a land. And we find out later it was never about the land of Israel. And Abraham never came to possess the land of Israel. All he got was a little burial place to put his bones and his wife's bones and his son's bones and his son's wife's bones and his grandson's bones and one of his grandson's wives bones in that little burial plot in the land of promise. And what Abraham realized was that God was giving a little down payment by promising the land of Canaan and that the great promise was that he would be heir of the world and heir of all things. How do I know that? Because the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 verse 13 says to Abraham and to his offspring by faith were the promises made that he would be heir of the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to inherit everything. Settling for anything less than an eternal inheritance, it doesn't matter what kind of house you have here. We nod our heads, but we don't believe that. We had people over last night, I was embarrassed by how crummy my yard looks. The weeds, and that, I'm not, that it doesn't look like a garden paradise. And we should take care of our yards as good stewards. But, but we put our hope here, and we want the nice houses, and we want the nice cars, and we want those things, and our hearts should be set on that eternal inheritance because you know what? You're not guaranteed one more second. You could drop dead right now. When I hear Christians talking about what they're planning to do in their 70s and 80s and 90s, and if I live to 100, I think, how foolish, how foolish, how absolutely foolish. 
Because God is something so much greater and so much bigger. He has an eternal inheritance laid up for those that will trust by faith in the Savior, who is himself the son of Abraham, who does everything necessary to get that inheritance, who takes Abraham's sin and our sin on himself, who keeps God's law perfectly, who is the true Israel, the son of Abraham, who does everything necessary, who is said to be the heir of all things, who is the one in Psalm 2, who is just to ask the Father, and the Father says, I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And the son comes, the son of Abraham secures and fulfills that promise. And he becomes the just and rightful heir of all things. And then he says, come to me. And the one that trusts in me will be an heir of all things with me. And I will share everything that I have with him. And I will share everything that I am with him. And he will be with me forever. And he will sit on my throne and rule and reign with me. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron with me. He will, one day, we will be with Christ. If we are those who have responded like Abraham by faith and then manifested that in a life of obedience, we will be those who are forever with Christ and seeing him rule and reign over the nations and the new heavens and the new earth filled with a people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation and language. You know, you almost wonder when Abraham finally went to glory, if God revealed to him what we know in the scriptures, and I'm sure he did, and what Abraham didn't know to the full, but trusted by faith, what that would have been like for Abraham to see what God's plan and purpose worked out in his promises in the fulfillment of all things in Christ would have been like for Abraham to see the absolute spectacular wisdom of God of taking a man whose wife was barren and making him the father of a people from every tongue and tribe and nation and language. It's absolutely astonishing. In, in fact, there's nothing bigger than that. There's nothing. You're hearing about the biggest thing. I'm probably failing you. If this is boring, either I'm failing you or you're not a Christian because it's the biggest thing. It's the biggest thing you could ever hear. It is God's purpose and plan in time. It is the big plan of God in time. What he is revealing to Abraham, God is essentially saying, this is the biggest thing I'm going to do. The nations are going to be blessed in your seed. Your name is going to be great. I'm going to bless you. And God says the same thing to you if you're a Christian. You know, when Paul, I often wonder if the Apostle Paul, who is the master of understanding Abraham, if the Apostle Paul didn't have something of the Abrahamic promise in mind when he broke out in that benediction in, uh, in the beginning of Ephesians 1, when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, who are in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ is yours because God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1.4, because he predestined us into adoption, Ephesians 1.5, because he forgave our sins in the work of Jesus, because he's filled us with wisdom and knowledge, Ephesians 1.7, because he has sealed us with the Spirit as a down payment, the promised Spirit as a guarantee till the redemption of the purchased possession the new heavens and the new earth and the, the throne room of heaven filled with a people out of every nation worshiping God who are children, sons and daughters 
of Abraham. You know, Travis often jokes with me and says that when he was growing up, he always thought, you know, we were always told it's about Old Covenant Israel. It's all about Israel. It's all about Old Covenant Israel. And, and not really, it's all about Christ, the son of Abraham, who fulfills all things. And, and Travis would say something like, you know, we had no right to sing Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. That's a very rich, covenantal, redemptive, historical children's song. Um, Paul in Galatians 3 and 4 sets out the theology, how this works, the inner workings of this. At the heart of it, and I love this because that last word of blessing at the call of Abraham, at the, the promises of God in that call, is that I'm going to bless you, and whoever curses you will be cursed. And what's fascinating is that God comes, and in order for that blessing to come to Abraham, and in order for that blessing to come to you, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, Christ, who is God, who made these promises to Abraham, Christ became a curse for us. On the cross, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessed God, who is over all blessed forever, the God who is promising blessing to Abraham, will accomplish that blessing by becoming a curse for us. Now, here's what I want to say to us this morning. How do we become people like Abraham? And, you know, I've been a Christian, born a, regenerate for 14 years. Um, I've been in ministry for eight of those 14 years and felt like I needed to be converted all over again when I read this passage and thought, have I left behind what God has called me out of, knowing that he's calling me into an everlasting inheritance and the blessing that is mine in Jesus Christ? Am I holding on to things too much? Am I loving this world too much? Always a good question to ask. Am I willing to take up my cross and deny myself and follow Jesus? Am I willing to build my house on the rock foundation of obedience to what Christ has said, flowing out of faith in Jesus? Is my life marked, characteristically marked by obedience? And as I think about that, and I think about my failings and my sin and my shortcomings, and the many times I've disobeyed, I'm reminded God provided a remedy for that. God has provided a remedy, a provision. You know, Abraham will actually, even though he is a great man of faith and he obeys and does great things and leaves his family and will offer up his son in obedience to God, whole life, a life attesting, nevertheless has great failings. He, he hands his wife over to other men twice in order to protect his own. And it doesn't help us not to face those failings and to say, the scriptures put those in the Bible to instruct us. Because you and I are people of great failings and great sin. And yet the blessing of Abraham and the way that our hearts are drawn off of the world and into greater and greater faith and obedience are by looking at the one who became a curse for us, the son of Abraham. Isn't that shocking? The one who fulfilled all things, to whom his, the, the covenant head, 
received the words, I'm going to bless you. The one who came to fulfill that heard the father say, I will curse you so that you will have the nations as your inheritance. I will curse you and your name will be great. I will curse you and I will bless them. I will curse you and I will forgive them. I will curse you and I will give them an everlasting inheritance with you. That's how it works. That's how the eternal inheritance works. That's how we get our hearts recalibrated to that, to hoping in that. Um, I hope that if you are not a believer, you've never trusted the God of promise, never responded to the call of grace, that you would do so, that you would look at the Lord Jesus and see how God has fulfilled everything that he said to Abraham and realize that that's all yours if you will repent and come to Jesus. Um, I hope that if you are trusting the Lord Jesus, that you will return again and be built up and edified in the knowledge that God who has called you is God who has given you large promises, who is God who has fulfilled those promises, who is God who is working behind that call in your life, who is guiding you to glory. That is the greatest thing that we need to hear, and we need to hear it over and over and over again. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us the grace that you gave to Abraham to respond to your call and to the call of your son to uh, leave behind our lives in this world and to follow the Savior to glory. We pray, our God, that you would remind us that you are the God who is working behind all things and that you are the God who has promised and who has fulfilled what you have promised, that you would give us grace to trust you and to cast ourselves on you and to cast ourselves wholly on what you have revealed in your word and to take you at your word. Our God, we are weak and weary and oftentimes feeble and frail and half-hearted in our faith and obedience. And so we pray, our God, that you would have mercy on us and that you would again fix our eyes on Jesus and help us to run with endurance the race set before us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.